From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've been coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. And we'll keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, we're talking about mistrust in politics. The voters don't trust the politicians, but it's also clear the politicians don't much trust the voters. We'll be looking at one extreme kind of mistrust, conspiracy theories that think of all of politics as a giant scam. A team of researchers at Cambridge has been exploring which kinds of conspiracy theories people are inclined to believe in and why. We'll be talking to them about their findings. They may surprise you. Then I'll be in conversation with the social historian Simon Schrater, who has some practical suggestions for bridging the gap between the politicians' narrow view of the world and how the voters really see it. Stay tuned to hear more. First, to the news of the past week. A week ago, we saw the one and only party leaders debate, two hours of our lives that none of us will ever get back. Who might really have won and lost has been thoroughly dissected by now, with the consensus that nothing really changed. But for me, two questions still remain. First, what is the appeal of Nigel Farage? And second, can we trust the numbers that the politicians keep spouting when they talk about the deficit and the national debt? 10 billion here, half a trillion there. What do figures on this scale actually mean? I'm joined by our regular news panel, whom I'm delighted to say are back to full strength. Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brook on political theory. Helen, let's start with the numbers. Did the figures that got tossed around in last week's debate actually tell us anything that we can wrap our heads around, or are they just numbers? I think that the numbers that got tossed around in the debate, with one exception that I'll come to, just do sound like numbers because people don't actually know how much is spent on things. I think the one number that kind of cuts through is when people hear that the debt, overall state debt, is more than a trillion pounds because that just sounds like an awful lot of money. That's a very big number. And it sounds like more money than we will ever pay back. Finbar, did any of the other numbers cut through? Because that was Farage who was, Nigel Farage who was pushing that point. But all the other candidates, and this includes Plaid Cymru, the SNP, Natalie Bennett for the Greens, were talking about the deficit, not the debt. 10 billion here, 5 billion there, what they would cut, what they would spend. What do those numbers mean? They're trying to gauge themselves off the 90 billion that is the current deficit number and trying to give people some sort of way in to see how much they feel needs to be cut. And it comes back again to the point about how all of this has been set up, that the deficit is the most important thing and that it is the end of the universe if we don't get the deficit to zero. There is still an argument to be had about this. There are still a lot of very prominent economists, Paul Krugman in the New York Times, screaming at people saying, why are you obsessed with this? So there's two pieces here. One is, do the numbers themselves mean anything to people listening? But is the foundation of the argument that it's pointing towards meaningful? And unfortunately, I think we're trapped in this deficit overfocus. Well, Nicola Sturgeon was the one person who tried to break out of that. She was the one person who insisted that she wasn't buying the it's the deficit or nothing argument. 
And I think she's right, personally. And she won the debate. And she won the debate, for me, hands down. Um, and it, it plays into the conservative strapline as well of labour is chaos. And so you can see how the story is being pushed into this really neat package. We need to do this because we're good, austere people. And if you go back there, all you'll get is an explosion of debt. Uh, it, it's just pantomime at that level. Chris, the one person who tried a different way of talking about numbers in the debate was David Cameron, who tried to do the I will explain this in language you'll understand version, which is, he said, the government will cut one pound in every hundred pounds that it is spending over the next two years, and that will finally eliminate the deficit. Did that mean anything to you? Well, I think the uh, Conservatives seem to have indicated they'll make £12 billion of savings out of the welfare budget, but they aren't telling people how they're going to make those savings. Labour has been attacking them about this, and this seems to be the line the Conservatives want to defend. And it is quite an interesting bit of politics, because I assume the Conservative thought is that voters will think that it'll be money coming out of benefit fraudsters and, as it were, bad welfare. Uh, But to make a serious dent in the budget, they'll be needing to cut ordinary benefits that ordinary people claim, very often ordinary people, in work. And that's quite a brave position, I think, for the Conservatives to line for them to try to hold. And they were clearly trying to soften that by putting it in terms of one pound in every hundred that's spent. And what's slightly obscuring the truth about that is it makes it sound as though that's just one percent across the board. But of course, a lot of it's been ring-fenced. In fact, the vast majority of government spending is already ring-fenced and accounted for. So that one percent has to come from some fairly narrow areas. And that was the thing, it seemed to me, that the Prime Minister was trying to cover up. I think he's also trying to cover up the fact that all the easy picking, so to speak, have been taken. The argument that says, well, we did it in this parliament, we can do it in the next parliament, doesn't really add up because it's just much, much more difficult second time round. So the other thing that stood out for me about the debate was the performance of Nigel Farage. I thought he didn't perform as well as I was expecting. He seemed a little bit flustered at some points. But afterwards, we discovered that the way he approached the debate was a deliberate tactic he was speaking to the maybe 20% of people who could vote UKIP, and he wasn't at all worried about how off-putting he might seem to the 80% of people who wouldn't consider voting UKIP. So it was a core vote strategy. Finbar, do you think that worked? Um, In terms of Farage, it probably worked for him. And I think actually with a little bit of distance between the debate and now and seeing some of the numbers that are coming out of South Thanet, that's, for me, the reason that he went so hard in this direction. And just he, to be clear, South Thanet, that's the constituency that he's fighting, and he's currently in a very, very tight race with both Labour and the Conservatives. So. And this is the point for me. He may lose. And if he loses, UKIP essentially is dead in the water. And I think that, for me, is the personal reason why he went so hard in this line. He needs to win his seat. It's not about the rest of the party right now. It's about him. So it wasn't even 20% of the country. He was speaking to one small group of people in South for me. Thanet. yes. So that also raises the interesting question about UKIP, which is that it's not just a one-man band. They have two members of parliament at the moment, Mark Reckless and Douglas Carswell, who is a very interesting former Conservative politician and someone I would describe as broadly a libertarian. And as I was watching the debate, I thought, well, Nigel Farage isn't going to be appealing much to at least one member of his party, Douglas Carswell, who I would imagine would have been squirming at some of the things that Farage was saying. 
Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think, first, I think that's right, that Carswell is the interesting other politician in UKIP. Mark Reckless is just a fairly tiresome right-wing Eurosceptic Conservative MP, a former Conservative MP. Uh, Carswell is a real original in British politics. He's filling a niche I don't think that anyone else fills. And for me, the moment when Farage was trying to put clear political water between him and Carswell was his very pointed, very deliberate as with many people, I think also outrageous remark about the provision of uh, treatment for HIV, for for foreigners with HIV that he made uh, in the middle of the debate. That's the kind of thing which uh, all the other parties have repudiated quite sharply, starting with uh, Leanne Wood in the debate itself. That's the kind of thing that I think is anathema to Carswell. And I think there we can see the, um, the two wings of the UKIP. UKIP ought to have the advantage that they are the least divided of the political parties. It's often said that the electorate punish first of all parties they think can't even unite among themselves. But as Chris has just described it, we now have the two wings of UKIP who knew there were two wings. And there's a maybe as big a gulf between the two wings of UKIP as there are between the two wings of the Conservative Party. Helen, do you think that's right? I think in principle it's right, but I think that divided parties, when you're only talking about two members of parliament, is slightly odd language to choose in, in, in one respect. I think the other thing we have to remember, though, is is that Farage hasn't got much choice but to pursue a core vote strategy because UKIP are organisationally weak. There are only a number of constituencies where they're in with any chance. And if you look at the people who are most likely to vote UKIP, his message worked well. If you look at the polls, he performed better than the number of people at the moment in opinion polls who say they're going to vote UKIP. And that, from his point of view, is a success. And he did have the one advantage that none of the other six people in that debate had, which he was able to say at one or two points, look, it's me against the rest of them. I think all of the others at various moments would like to have been able to say that, but none of them could because too many of the others agreed with them. He did have one or two moments where he was the one lone voice against the establishment. That's absolutely true. And it, obviously that fit with the opening statement that he made, which is they're all the same and I'm different. Thanks to Helen Finbar and Chris. I'll be coming back to them later. But now to conspiracy theories. The Labour Shadow Foreign Secretary Douglas Alexander recently complained that too many people were believing crazy stories about conspiracies because they were getting their news from the echo chambers of the internet. This after he met a woman who told him that the results of the Scottish independence referendum were faked and the falling oil price was all part of the plot. Is he right to be worried? I talked to three researchers who have been part of a team looking into what makes us believe in conspiracy theories and why. They've been using YouGov to poll the British public about their conspiratorial beliefs. I asked two members of the team, Hugo Drochon and Rolf Friedheim, to explain what they asked and what they discovered. First, Hugo. So we asked about seven different types of questions, some pretty classic ones like the 9-11 was an inside job, that the AIDS virus was created by a lab and spread around the world, that the government is hiding the fact that we have contacts with aliens. Then we had more specific UK-based ones. So we had questions about whether, whether the government was hiding truth about the number of immigrants there is in the country and whether the EU is slowly taking over um, the UK. We had a final one also about global warming in general, whether that is a hoax or not. And what kind of answers did we get? 
So for instance, contact with aliens, which was one of slightly higher ones, is around 14%. 9-11 as an inside job is 11%. Of people who believe who, who believe theory. it, yes. Who either believe it or think it's definitely true or think it's probably true. Okay, so this is a total truth. America is often presented as a land of conspiracy theory. So one of the things we wanted to do was to see whether it was a case that there was American exceptionalism in this or not. And we found that in general, no, the British response is more or less on par. So, so, that, so we're about as conspiracy theory minded as the Americans? Yes, absolutely. The question then becomes a bit more complicated when you get to the questions of immigration and the EU, which is a lot higher. That's around 55 or 52 percent. So it's clear that while some conspiracy theories are still marginal to mainstream politics, some have a hold on the majority of people. And to be clear, these were questions asking people if they thought governments were deliberately hiding the truth about immigration or the EU was secretly plotting a takeover. More than half of all respondents said yes. The question is, are these sorts of widely held beliefs evidence that most people really are conspiracy theorists or are they simply a symptom of growing mistrust and anger with politics generally? Now, Rolf. So when you look at the questions where the politics don't so obviously come into it, such as whether AIDS is being deliberately spread by CIA or we've covered up the truth about interactions with aliens, then the people who think it's definitely true, we're talking numbers of maybe 1%. So something genuinely marginal. So when you strip the politics out of it and people are just presented with what is clearly, to most people, a ridiculous fact, they can see it for what it is. But when it's got a clear political connotation then they see it through the filter of their own political beliefs. Is that right? Absolutely. And the challenge is then to strip the politics out of it. OK, so can we, because this was a survey that asked people as well to identify themselves along party affiliation lines. We know about gender, we know about age, we know where they were from. So we know some details about the kinds of people who believe the kinds of things. So is there evidence here if we take, say, the question about the EU or the question about immigration? What kinds of people fall into this quarter who think that it is definitely the case that there's something sinister going on. Overall, if you look overall, then gender is not a factor in conspiracy theories. However, if you go deeper into it, you realise that the people who are more likely to be conspiracy theorists are actually working class men over the age of 40 who are most likely reading The Sun. So our study actually finds that UKIP voters are more likely to be conspiracy theorists. But we have to understand what the relationship between those two are. It's not because they're UKIP voters, it's because their conspiracy theorists are more likely to vote for the UKIP. So the main finding of our study is what we've termed complete political exclusion is that, that people who feel completely unrepresented and completely excluded from the political system are the people who are most likely to be conspiracy theorists. And if you think that UK, UKIP votes um, normally captures the anti, as a protest vote, it's the anti-establishment vote, then it um, makes sense to think that it's conspiracy theorists are more likely to vote for UKIP. So does that suggest that were by some miracle UKIP to result? This election to result in UKIP winding up in power in some sense in Westminster, that UKIP voters would now cease to be conspiracy theorists because they would feel represented, or they would turn their conspiracy theories onto UKIP as well, because actually what's driving this is a sense that whoever's in power, they suspect that something is going on there that's happening behind the scenes and is trying to keep them on the outside. Rolf? We suspect they would still feel excluded from what goes on at Westminster. When we looked at the numbers, we found that feeling represented was not particularly important in terms of determining whether someone's a conspiracy theorist or not. Instead, it's questions about trust and about whether you think the political system is fundamentally corrupt and bankrupt. 
So the main um, indicator we found, as Rolf has just said, about um, somebody being a conspiracy theorist is a rejection of the political system as a whole and deep distrust of all types of political institutions. So it looks like there's more conspiracy theorizing out there than we might think. But it's important to get this into perspective. I was also joined by Tanya Feiler, who's an expert on Argentinian politics, where conspiracy theories don't just represent a marginal activity. Conspiracy theory is almost the only way that anyone thinks about politics inside and outside government. I asked Tanya whether it's right to say that in Argentina, conspiracy theory is the language of politics. I think that's absolutely true. I think, though, it's important perhaps to start by emphasising a shared anxiety, um, which is that many public commentators in Argentina are strongly concerned about the effect of polarisation and echo chambers they perceive social media to be generating now. Argentinians are among the most prolific social media users today globally, and they're also highly polarised along political lines. And there's certainly an anxiety about this polarisation being emphasised and deepened through social media, through hashtags on Twitter, through short Facebook statements. Can you give us an example of a recent conspiracy theory that's really dominated Argentinian political life? There's been a glut of conspiracy theories surrounding the death in suspicious circumstances of Alberto Nisman, the special prosecutor on the AMIA case, a case regarding a bomb attack uh, in the 1990s on a Jewish community centre. And the prosecutor uh, was found dead in his apartment in unknown circumstances with a gunshot to his head. The media, for lack of evidence and for lack of facts, has simply resorted to theories that either involve the government, uh, the president, or the the secret intelligence agency as uh, behind this murder. There's a sense that these conspiracy theories are really filling in for a lack of facts in public circulation. There are so few facts publicly available that people are producing stories to stand in, in a way, for this lack of evidence, for this lack of facts. And also, I think there's a sense that these facts might not emerge, and therefore there needs to be some way of accounting for these events. And then, Rolf, you're, among other things, an expert on Russia and the Russian media. We just heard about the Argentinian case where there's a whole raft of conspiracy theories around an event that places suspicion on government or the secret services or so on. But it's also true in Argentina and in Russia that government uses conspiracy theories as a way of communicating. I mean, Putin is, in some sense, the master of the conspiracy theory as propaganda. In Ukraine, in Crimea, Russian propaganda often depends upon a conspiracy theory about the West. So is Russia categorically different from somewhere like Britain in the way that people experience conspiracy theories? I think certainly in Russia, conspiracy theories are all pervasive and within mainstream state-controlled media landscape. If you turn on the television, there's no real alternative to the single state-controlled media. Because Putin and others are instrumentalizing conspiracy theories for strategic reasons, there really is no escape from this. So to be an opposition activist in Russia almost automatically, almost by default, means you have to be a conspiracy theorist because you don't trust any of the information that you get through the media. Certainly, it's all pervasive. Thanks to Rolf, Tanya and Hugo. One final finding from the survey. The poll also looked to see whether people in Scotland, where Douglas Alexander met his conspiracy theorist, are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than elsewhere in the UK. Perhaps surprisingly, the opposite turned out to be true. 
Scots, on the whole, are less likely to believe in conspiracy theories than people in England and Wales. Northern Ireland was not part of the survey. That could be because Scots, thanks to devolution, actually feel less excluded from the political system than people in other regions of the United Kingdom. Or it could be because the survey didn't ask questions about the independence referendum and oil. You get the conspiracy theories you look for. Now to the social historian Simon Schrater to talk more broadly about mistrust in politics and some of the ways it can be bridged. Simon recently published an article that argued for one practical solution to the problems of politicians being closed off from the experiences and views of whole swathes of the population. Get them to swap constituencies with each other to see how the other half lives. Here's how it might work. I think that the, the key point is that hardworking MPs do have a decent exposure to their own constituency. But the question is how representative of the nation is that, considering particularly if you're an MP that's supporting the government, the government is legislating things that affect the entire nation, not just your constituency. It occurred to me that one of the great strengths of our system is this geographical representation and accountability and the constituency surgery, which is a great thing. But the question is, is that actually lulling MPs into thinking that they know what's going on in the real world when what they know what's going on applies to their own particular place? What Danny Dawling and I were able to show is that there are, of course, as one would you know, expect, very, very substantial differences between different constituencies in the, the basic vector of how poor or well off they are. Um, I suppose what particularly irked me was when I heard Michael Gove suggesting that the need for food banks was simply that people were mismanaging their budgets and he couldn't really understand why, why those should be needed. That may be the case in his constituency of Surrey Heath, where there are also rather small proportions of people living in poverty. If he swapped and spent a week in one or two other constituencies, he would get a rather different view. Coventry Northeast would be the, the swap, according to our table, for him. So, so the, just to explain to people, the suggestion is the richest constituencies, the Member of Parliament should swap with an equivalent at the other end of the scale, the poorer constituencies, yes. for a week and experience the surgeries, the constituent problems and complaints for a week from the other end of the scale, seeing that, the world through, that's through right. the other. And, and to do that once a year. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Almost all politicians do recognize that there is a significant gap between how they see the world and how they're seen by voters. There's a gulf of trust. There's a gulf of understanding. Do you think this proposal would address that? As an alternative to the common suggestion that's put that MPs should take a second job, a paid job outside Parliament as their way of getting to know about the real world, I think this would appeal to the electorate as a rather more honest and rather more uh, edifying way of finding out about society than those rather often quite well remunerated second jobs that are being taken by MPs at the moment. There is another issue with the Westminster bubble as it's perceived by the public. 
which is that politicians look the same to many members of the public, regardless of party. They are this narrow political class. A lot of them come from similar educational backgrounds. Very few of them have worked outside of politics because the way to get into politics is to have been a special advisor or to have worked close to government from an early age. Are you one of those people who think that one of the reasons that so many members of the public seem suspicious of politics is that politicians don't look like ordinary members of the public because they seem like a separate little cliquey group apart? I think that that's a stereotype view. I mean, I certainly think particularly if you look at the people who are representing some of those poorer constituencies. They're quite diverse in terms of their ethnicity. Certainly it's excellent that there are many more women in Parliament. We need to get to a 50-50 split there, and we're not there yet. But so I think that the idea of the diversity of the MPs is possibly a bit of a red herring. I think that the real issue is, in a sense, how these MPs are, who they are representing who is getting to them. One of the things that also struck me and made me think about this doing this exercise was when the Prime Minister, David Cameron, was trying to fend off accusations that he'd got too close to Rebecca Brooks and the Murdoch Empire, in the press there appeared an authorised diary of who he had met with over a quite significant period of time, like a whole month, And the diary was issued in order to demonstrate that he had only met Rebecca Brooks a very small number of times, perhaps once or twice. And that sort of satisfied the press that Prime Minister was, quote unquote, clean in in that respect. But what seemed to go completely unnoticed at the time, but really struck me, was actually looking at who he had met. They were almost entirely people from the financial services sector in the city. There were really very, very few people from anywhere else in society that he was apparently having meetings with. Now, that month may have been an unusual one, and I don't know if one can get hold of that kind of information on a regular basis. But it would be very much to the point of what I think may be wrong with politics if it can be demonstrated that certainly our upper sphere of politicians are far too involved in the affairs and the interests of one rather small group in society and are not really engaging in a meaningful way, except in in the rhetoric in their speeches, with the interests of um, really rather more or less everybody else. So just to broaden it out a bit, you're a historian and you're a rare historian in that you work also in policy. You run a part of Cambridge University, which is the history and policy group that engages with politicians, engages with campaigning organisations, and tries to show what history can bring to contemporary political argument. We'll come on to history in a second. But what do you think is missing in this election campaign, or more broadly, argument in Britain about politics? Serious discussion of taxation. Because tax for a long time, particularly actually in fact under New Labour, was a sort of no-go area for public policy discussion. New Labour were terrified that the word itself would cause them to hemorrhage votes, almost just saying it. Tax is, is interesting, and that's where historical perspective, I think, is very important. Very few people seem to realise that not just in this country, in the UK, but also in the United States of America the home of the free, etc. The home of low tax. The home of low tax, it said. But in both countries, between approximately 1940 and 1980, for four decades, 
they had extremely high levels of progressive taxation on highest incomes and on capital and on inheritance in particular in the region of 90% for highest earnings and incomes. Now, that wasn't just for a year or two to support the war effort. That went on for four decades, during which both of those economies performed very strongly, particularly the British economy, actually the highest growth rates uh, it's, it's really ever seen. This whole period is called the golden age. The sort of the idea that high taxes are a sort of an anathema and that if you're talking about high taxes, you must be some kind of communist is, I think, to a historian is ludicrous. I mean, America, United States during the 1950s, when it had those 90 percent and 92 percent rates of taxation, was going through the McCarthyite scare at the same time. They were scared to death of communists, but they didn't see those high levels of taxation as communists. They actually saw them very interestingly as protections against robber barons, this is where the rhetoric had originally started many decades before, as basically the way to give the small guy the chance in life and to avoid unwanted concentrations of wealth and power. Now, that whole discourse is not being discussed at all. It's clearly there. And, you know, I think that that's something that, that really we need to think about. So when you take the historical perspective, where did it go? So there it was, it was there for 40 years. And I'm not going to ask you to be a conspiracy theorist about this. But as you said, one of the things that's happened is that in our democracies, a smaller and smaller group of people are interacting with each other to the exclusion of larger and larger numbers of people. Mm. What happened to discussion about tax? Was it a deliberate attempt by a particular section of society to bury it, to get rid of it as a topic of political discussion? Or did we just drift off, lose attention, forget that it mattered? Given, as you describe it, it was just mm. a part of political life, where did it go? There were well-mobilised, quite rhetorically powerful reasons why it was originally abandoned in the course of the 1980s by the Thatcher administrations. The argument they had, which was made plenty of sense at the time, was that um, the British economy seemed to have lost its way in the 1970s, that it was overtaxed, etc., and that reducing these high marginal tax rates would release what were called the wealth creators, would create incentives for people to repower the British economy. So the argument, you know, and, and the British people gave that argument a fair chance. And that sort of approach has now had a full three decades to see where it goes. It's had its fair chance. It's had its fair chance. And it, what it, where it goes is it doesn't produce any better economic growth rates than were achieved during the 50s, 60s and, and early 70s before the, the oil crisis. What it does do is it does clearly create wealth for a very small number of people, the people who are not paying those high progressive tax rates and the people who are not paying inheritance taxes at the same level and so on. So it certainly generated billionaires and multimillionaires, but the, the argument that it would benefit the general economy and uplift the growth rates is, a, is an entirely unpro unproven one. Well, in fact, the opposite. It's proven that it hasn't done that. What is also created, of course, is rising poverty. Those statistics that this table about the constituencies shows is that it goes alongside workers at the bottom of the, of the pyramid, so to speak, having less opportunity. And that's partly, I think, because with a lower 
tax take, you can't afford to fund your public services, notably secondary and higher education and vocational training, in the kind of generous way that would enable the wider population to benefit from uh, what's called a human capital effect, from um, becoming more skilled and more knowledgeable and more able workers. It's still the case that the children of the middle classes can do that because their parents have a lot of um, resources to, to assist them with. But the whole point about a well-funded, re- relatively more generously taxed society is that you provide those resources for everybody, including the bottom 30 40% of the population. And they're the ones who are losing out when we go for a relatively low tax regime and when we emphasise the, the rights to create their own wealth of the wealthy. I mean, over the longer term, I think that, you know, history can be extremely emancipatory and it can give people imaginative resources to think about contextualising current policy problems in ways that they may not have realised. And to give you one example is the long term, very, very long term history of England's welfare state provision. A lot of people think the welfare state is a creation of beverage the mid 20th century in common with many other advanced societies and they think this is something you get once you've become rich and wealthy it's a present that you give to yourself as a society and it's a bit of a luxury and then in hard times like at the moment it's quite easy to make the argument as George Osborne has that austerity means we need to cut these things and people tend to accept that now the actual long-term history of welfare and social security provision is extraordinarily different from this. It actually substantially predates our own industrial revolution. It goes right back to the 16th century to legislation in the reign of Elizabeth I, extremely far-sighted legislation, which actually set up something that sounds terrifically modern, an absolute right to relief, an absolute entitlement of every subject of the crown to be maintained alive, not just in times of famine and dearth, which was a common problem in the past, but it actually applied to orphans, to the elderly, to the ill, and yes, indeed, to the unemployed. So England actually pioneered a universal social security system hundreds of years ago, which functioned very effectively, and there's some very strong evidence for this, of which the most probably convincing piece of evidence is that England was unique in the course of the 17th and 18th centuries in the whole of Western Europe in being the only place where regional famines no longer occurred when harvest failures happened. So harvest failures causing price rises, causing consequent mortality is something that can be tracked in the historical record, and it shows up all over the place. Intriguingly, in England, that relationship is broken after the 1620s, within 30 years of the creation of this, what's called the Elizabethan poor law system. So we've got some quite compelling comparative evidence that this system was actually preserving the health of the, of the whole population, which is what it was designed to do. You know, that perspective starts to make us think again about the relationship between human security, human capital, social capital and economic growth because we all know industrialization, economic growth happened in England first before anywhere else in the world. All sorts of things are often mentioned, our coal seams, the invention of the steam engine, all this stuff which plays into myths about entrepreneurs and business and capital. But 
economics itself has become far more interested in what's called institutions in the last 20 years or so, the long-term evolution of institutions as being related to uh, differences in countries in terms of their capacity to, to grow economically or not. And I think, you know, I would say that one of the, one of the really strong examples of a very important institution for economic prosperity, as well as for humanitarianism in the in this society was England's poor law its social security system in in enabling the country to become much more economically prosperous and vigorous and mobile as other things came into play I'm certainly not arguing that by the way that the, the poor law created the industrial revolution I'm just saying that it was a seems to have been a rather important and, and unique contextual institution in England which facilitated it now, you know, that kind of very long-term perspective perhaps starts to make us think a little bit differently about how sensible it is to cut the welfare state, to cut the health system, to cut the educational uh, provisions for university, for instance, to cut the aspects of the state that supports the formation of human and social capital. If we start to think that the long-term perspective on economic growth is suggesting that this is more integral to successful economic productivity and economy than we may have suspected, that actually it's not necessarily a luxury that you get after you've become wealthy. It's actually all part of the story of how you become an economically vigorous society in the first place. So as a historian, thinking in those long terms gives you a sense of possibility that might be missing from contemporary political argument, which I think a lot of people find is narrow and constrained. It's very hard for politicians to break outside certain conventional ways of presenting the problem. It's a sort of choice between growth and welfare. And you're saying a historian's perspective can show that's a false choice. But then presumably you would share the view of many voters, citizens, that we never hear that kind of argument from politicians. And it's very hard to imagine them making that argument. So civil servants might be interested in what you have to say. Maybe politicians behind the scenes would like to hear what you have to say. But in this election campaign, what we hear is primarily the narrow, constrained, unimaginative kind of political discourse that you as a historian want to break free from. The kind of problem you're addressing with your constituency swaps proposal, which is just to get politicians just to open their eyes a little bit to the range of what's out there. Do you see a sense of possibility and optimism that there is a, another way of talking about politics that's waiting to break out? To re-energise politics, we need to bring the vote down to age 16 so that school children are voting, so that the whole business of education of politics starts to take a role in schools, not, not of course, indoctrination, but for, for them to understand how important politics is. And I think we ought to really seriously think about what the Australians have been doing for, for a whole century, which is compulsory voting. People say, oh, compulsory voting, that's going to hurt the poor, isn't it? Because they won't vote and then, and then you'll have to find them. I think there's an extremely simple answer to that, which is negative fines. In other words, everybody gets a, a lottery voucher or something to vote. If you don't turn up to vote, you don't get your place in the lottery or possibly even a, a £20 voucher to be donated to the charity of your choice. If you don't vote, instead of being cool to not vote because it shows how nonchalant and cynical you are, it becomes a bit of a losing strategy because it means the things you care for uh, don't get any money from you. So there are plenty of imaginative ways to encourage uh, compulsory voting. I think it would be extremely good for the for the nation to have. And of course, compulsory voting includes the turning up and, and destroying your ballot as a protest. You are registering your wish not to vote instead of simply not turning up. 
Thank you to Simon Schrater. Now back to our news panel. Yesterday, Tony Blair gave a widely noticed speech on Europe. It got a lot of notice in part because of what it said. It was a direct attack on the Conservative Party's promise to hold a referendum on Europe, but more for who was saying it. Blair still divides opinion like almost no one else in British politics. Did it do any good? Chris? I think perhaps there is a case that it will make a difference. Um, One of the most striking things about British politics over the last quarter century or so is that a lot of the fiercest political arguments among the political class have been about Britain's relationship in the European Union. It's now an argument about British membership of the European Union. But when you... When the opinion pollsters ask people what issues they most care about, topics like constitutional reform and Europe come right at the bottom of the list. This is an issue that most people don't care about. So a very polarising figure like Blair talking about Europe, I think it's water off a duck's back for most voters. They made up their mind what they think about Blair a long time ago, and they don't care about Europe. But I wonder whether there's a small slice of the electorate that would lean towards the Conservative Party, that doesn't much like Mr Miliband's Labour Party, but that will be reminded because of this kind of intervention that they don't like the Conservative antagonism towards Europe. They do think that a referendum will bring a lot of chaos in its wake. I wonder whether, if we think about Blair's intervention as targeted towards a narrow slice of the electorate, that it might in fact have the impact he hopes for. And Helen, what about the somewhat bigger slice of the electorate who really don't like Tony Blair? I mean, he's not just polarising in the sense that people divide one way or the other. There is a significant, I think, portion of the population for whom just the mention of his name starts them, name gets them very agitated. Absolutely. I don't see, I must say, what Labour gains from having Tony Blair return from his expat super rich lifestyle to give lectures to the British people about how they're too stupid and unworldly to vote in a referendum on the EU and to tell us that the great challenge of our time in our country is inequality when he earns the obscene amounts of money he does from his time as Prime Minister. It doesn't fit with any Labour narrative that Ed Miliband has been wanting to push for the last five years in some sense of drawing a very clear line between himself and new Labour. So what does it say about the Ed Miliband strategy that it included this intervention because presumably he must have sanctioned it? It's very difficult to think that um, Ed Miliband um, didn't sanction it, that Blair has such influence over him that he can simply insist on um, doing something like that. And I guess from Ed Miliband's point of view, the, idea, the fact that it was about or primarily about opposing a referendum on the European Union, something on which he and Blair clearly do sing from the same um, song sheet, made it unproblematic. But listening to Blair, as I say, given the toxic nature of Blair's reputation with the majority of um, British voters, attack so directly on the question of the voters aren't intelligent enough to make the sensible choice about... Um, the European Union seems to me a rather foolish tactic. I mean, it did strike me that it was a very Blair argument, not just Blairite, but Blair himself, and that it was very, very sweeping. He talked about geopolitics, which is not a phrase you hear in many election speeches these days, trying to fit it together with the rise of China and ru- the threat that comes from Russia, what's going on in Africa. And yet he was talking about some fairly parochial issues. And it did sound to me a little bit as though he was downgrading what might bother the British people because he wanted them to see the wider picture. And I wasn't sure that that goes down very well with national electorates. Not necessarily he's telling them they're too stupid, but he's just telling them to broaden their horizons a bit. 
Well, I don't actually think he was speaking to the broad electorate. I think that this was much more about a manoeuvre to speak to the media and to speak across the other parties. I think it was, uh, even as you say, Blair is so polarising, but he's a big gun. And when he was speaking, you may hate the content, but his delivery is still very strong. He's very good at standing up and doing that kind of speech. So for me, it was mainly about putting another big gun in the field that the Conservatives have to respond to. And they may not be clear enough to respond in the way that Helen is speaking about and keeping the news cycle. The Labour have kept the news cycle for many, many days now. You haven't seen a Conservative story. And that's a great strategy. Thanks to all our guests this week, Hugo Droshon, Rolf Friedheim, Tanya Feiler and Simon Schrater, our regulars Helen Thompson, Finn Barlivzi and Chris Brook, and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow and Francis Durnley. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to the neuroscientist Barbara Sahakian about how the brain responds to the messages we hear during a campaign. Why do we pick up on some signals and not on others? And why does mental health really matter in this election? More next time. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge University podcast, Election. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.